Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our from-the-trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. Today on the Practical Preservation Podcast, uh, we have Bruce with us from the Lebanon County Historical Society. Um, Thank you for joining us. Sure. So tell me a little bit about your background. Uh, well, um, going way back, I actually <laughs> grew up on a farm and uh, always, uh, from very young, had an interest in not just history, but material culture, which are, is uh, the, art, the artifacts, uh, old books, old paper, old bottles. And basically, when you're young, if you collect anything, you're not... You, you, collection isn't too refined as you know so you're very broad yes <laughs> you're very broad in your interests and then as you become older you you understand um, lots of things like the technology behind how things were made and mm-hmm. then provenance the history of something is it associated with anybody that matters to you and so your your collecting becomes more sophisticated as you as you mature mm-hmm. and uh, and just um, even I guess as a kid, had a goal to work in a museum, and um, but in uh, local colleges and universities, and this would be in the nineteen seventies, um, unless you were going to go to a special program, uh, there wasn't so much available on museum studies and public no. history no. back then. So uh, I went with a straight. Um, bachelor's degree in, uh, in American history, and then the same thing uh, with a master's degree, but then specialized on, in, in colonial. But during my undergraduate time, I was able to pick up two uh, very valuable internships with the Pennsylvania Historical Museum Commission. The first one that I did was in fact in historic preservation, and uh, <laughs> I worked on uh, a National Register nomination as my project for um, what's known, people know it now as the Renaissance Fair, but okay. in fact it was the Mount Hope uh, Iron Furnace. Oh, okay. And uh, what a lot of people don't know is that uh, under separate ownership back there uh, in the woods on the other side of, of, the, of the turnpike is the original uh, Mount Hope Furnace Stack and the charcoal house and other other associated. Oh, I, d- I did not know that. That's very cool. And so uh, anyway, I had, had uh, I got that going or got that drafted, mm-hmm. and then a professional staff later finished that off. And then um, about 1980 or so, I had an internship in the section of archaeology, 
And so as I was starting to think about uh, getting into a career in museum work or public history, the route that I took, um, and, and interns often ask me, gee, you know, what should I do? Well, <laughs> the route that I took was, was, to, be, was to be very broad. Right. So I had uh, the uh, uh, Bachelor of Arts in History and then got a, a master's uh, in uh, history at, with a minor in art history. So I thought, okay, now I've got the <laughs> academic history and I've got a little bit of archaeology and I've got some historic preservation and I get some art history under my belt. And then I took a, a course in uh, archival management too. Oh, yes. So, um, so that's what I, I was thinking this very, mm -hmm. very broad approach and uh, and my first um, job then um, with the museum commission was in in historic preservation okay and did you manage sites or what did you what did you do with no, it within like, preservation uh, if, if you compare um, the Pennsylvania State Historic Preservation Office to say the National Park Service mm -hmm. uh, which would be the federal version Folks in the Park Service always like to say that they have their in-house programs and their outhouse programs. <laughs> so the in-house programs in the NPS are the sites um, that they own and that they manage and they administer. And then their uh, outhouse or out-of-house programs are things like the like the National Register, National Historic Landmark Program, and things where they where the National Park Service interfaces with, with the public, the state. Oh, uh, with other yeah, with yeah. other programs yeah, that are entities, outside yeah. of what they directly manage. Yeah. yeah. So uh, same thing with the with uh, the Historical Museum Commission. They had a bureau, and they've changed their their organization over the years. But um, at one time, and most of the time that I worked there, they had a had a bureau of historic sites and museums, mm -hmm. and those were our own satellite. Right. Uh, museums, everything from the State Museum to Landis Valley to Ephrata Cloister to Cornwall Iron Furnace, mm -hmm. uh, just to name some of the ones that are, are more local. Right. Um, and uh, what I did, uh, however, is I worked in what you could call the outhouse programs. Um, and for what I did uh, for most of the time, when I, when I first started, I did a lot of what we called environmental review. And that was looking at any uh, kind of project that had state or federal funding, um, grants, uh, or licensing, and assess the impact on historic resources. Right. So, if, for example, there was a um, there was a project one time in in uh, just as an example in McKeesport, uh, where they. Um, severely depressed um, at that point um, in the 1980s. And uh, they they were looking to demolish, I think it was like 300 houses. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> because they had so, 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 so much yeah. vacant housing stock. And a lot of these were in good repair, yeah. but the, the market had plummeted. And so I, I did those kinds of assessments. And then gradually, as I got more experience, I was given more and more projects to actually review the plans and specifications. So, um, and at the same time, we had a, had a bit of, uh, of trouble keeping a preservation architect, which oh, is a yeah. very high, highly valued skill set, 
not necessarily a, a registered architect, but somebody who has uh, is would be a, who has at least an MArch or a master's in architecture, right. and then has it. So a lot of times I had to really fill in um, to keep projects moving because Pennsylvania had an immense amount of, of uh, materials coming in, not just the environmental reviews, but there was um, um, uh, economic recovery tax act oh, yes. or the tax credits for, for uh, certified historic rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. And I ended up spending most of my time reviewing those, uh, re reviewing those kinds of plans and specifications. And so I still know, uh, even though uh, e even though I'm out of that, <laughs> probably that business, probably 30 some years, 25, 25 to 30 some years, yeah. I still know um, that you, uh, you know, if you're cleaning a building, you don't use more than 600 pounds per square right. inch of pressure <laughs> at four gallons of flow rate at the nozzle. <laughs> and how to make a high line, you know, a high, yes. the, the recipe for high line mortar and those yeah. kind of things. So, well, and those are, those are the things that are important that are going to not cause irreversible damage to the building. <laughs> right. And, and that, whole, that whole principle of, of irreversibility is something, whether you're a conservator of, of paper or paintings or you're a curator uh, whether you're looking at a building or you're looking at an artifact a piece of paper that uh, it's almost like the the Hippocratic oath for a doctor <laughs> do no harm right you do nothing that can't be uh, reversed that's true <laughs> uh, unless it absolutely needs to be done to stay mm -hmm. to you know if, if, yeah. the, if the piece is in imminent danger of you know, collapse or disintegration, and, yeah. and sometimes yeah. you have to, yeah, you have to, have to do it, way. yeah, a big intervention. So, what, um, what drew you into preservation? Was it your internship, or uh, had you already kind of decided that was the direction you wanted to go? Yes, actually, the very first thing that I did in my very first internship was uh, there was a uh, very early log house down toward. Um, Philadelphia, I think it was in Upper Darby, mm. Upper Darby Township, and it was uh, reputed to be a Swedish. I think uh, I've read about that. A Swedish log yeah. house, and matter of fact, there were two of them there. There was the upper cabin and the lower cabin, <laughs> and uh, some people thought they dated to the to the 1600s, right. and some of them thought they dated to the 1700s. And well, this was my first project as my first. Uh, public history internship. And the person who was my mentor handed me all this correspondence and material and said, see what you think about this and make an assessment out of it. And what I found um, was that a lot of people were spinning their wheels, I, I thought, just as a, as a new pair of eyes. Right. A lot of people were spinning their wheels and wasting a lot of their time trying to figure out if this uh, little log house was uh, Swedish or Finnish, it could have been <laughs> Finnish because there were actually more Finns in some of these parts yeah. than, than Swedes, um, or whether it was Germanic, whether it dated to the 1660s or whether it dated to the 1720s to, to 50s. Right. And so, unfortunately, uh, the site was not very well guarded or protected, and so it was being... Uh, vandalized while people were arguing about its ethnicity and right. its age and right. you know its different attributes 
Yeah. And uh, which I thought was a real shame. That was the that, one lesson. Yeah. I, yeah. I kind of well, and that. and really in the whole scheme of things, I mean, it's nice to be able to like pinpoint a date or pinpoint, you know, who built it. But when you're looking at time, a time period where there were no records, there were no build, there was no building permit. Uh, I don't think that there would be a big difference between the late 1600s and the early 1700s from a log building. <laughs> yeah. And they were looking at things like a, like a Scandinavian attribute would right. be a corner fireplace, yeah. and uh, a, a German attribute would be full full dovetail uh, corner notch, right? And things like that. Yeah. And uh, you know, and I said, well, gee, we could have had a a Swedish woman who married a, a German, and she said. Uh, you know, we'll build this the way you like it, but I've got to have a corner fireplace. Right, right. And right, and right there would have been. Yeah, the answer. Uh, but nobody you know, knows. Nobody, reason. nobody had the answer. So, yeah. <laughs> and and it did much later. Uh, well, it contributed to my initial interest in log mm -hmm. buildings, and then uh, much later, well, not too much later, is in, in the big sense of time. <laughs> but about 1991, then I I drafted a a technical bulletin for the National Park Service on the restoration and repair of historic log buildings. One of the, um, oh, now the preservation, the preservation, preservation, yeah. And um, I was pretty proud of it at the time, and I still am because it was at that point it was the longest technical bulletin in that series, mm -hmm. and it was the first one that was conceived in a state office rather than in the National Park Service right. and essentially written in. State office. Um, now, of course, the NPS, it was their publication, so they had to have the last word on editing. And right. so there were photographs that I that I wanted to use that didn't get used. <laughs> and initially, um, in those days when I uh, worked there, I mean, not everybody had a computer on their desk. Oh, yeah. That would have been early. If you wanted to order any of the preservation briefs, you wrote to the U.S government yeah. printing office and for like a dollar a piece you could get these yeah. and the NPS shipped these out uh, essentially free to all of the different state offices mm -hmm. and we could distribute them but what I what I found or what initiated that was um, um, at that point I had a very experienced um, preservation architect that I was working oh, with yes. and uh, he had worked for the National Park Service some time before and uh, there at that point there were already 20, 20 some of these technical yeah. uh, briefs and we often got I often took calls in the office where somebody would call for assistance and they'd say I'm can can you give me some advice I'm restoring a log house or restoring a log cabin <laughs> <laughs> and we'd start talking about this and uh, not too far into the conversation, I might find out that all they really had were a bunch of salvaged logs in the back of a tractor trailer. Oh my goodness! <laughs> or in a shed. So, um, and uh, and and I'm not saying that sometimes that is, isn't the only way to save right. all that can be saved, but um, too often people. People thought that the whole history and significance was it was inherent in the logs alone. Right. And so everything else, the interior trim, fireplace mantles, and everything got thrown away right. just to try and, and save the logs. And, um, and sometimes these were already taken up and moved without any 
necessarily any numbering or photographs or any prior documentation and so they had this big jigsaw puzzle of very a large severely compromised artifact and I said to my supervisor one day I said the Park Service is is doing all these preservation briefs and they got into some really fine points of preservation they were doing historic storefronts right yeah things I said but nobody has written one on this very basic wall and structural system of laws yeah and with his prior background and context that we had in the Park Service said why don't you write one he said go ahead and he said I'll talk up the chain about the idea and you draft one and we'll send it in and see if they salute oh that's great yeah I know we've we've restored a few logs and one in Elizabethtown when you said fireplace it made me think of it we found the mantle had been like covered up and built into the wall so we found we found the mantle there um, but yeah, you typically, yeah, people are more worried about the logs <laughs> the than log, the rest yeah. of it. Yes. <laughs> so um, tell me um, about the Lebanon County Historical Society. Tell me like, a little bit about the history. Well, the, uh, this historical society was, was established in uh, 1898. And uh, like uh, a lot of county historical societies, um, early on when they were established, and, and you can well imagine that some of the earlier counties <laughs> with a larger population, uh, and certainly those that have more, ones that have maybe institutions of higher learning or have more of a, uh, a critical mass of, of um, people looking to, to, to preserve certain things from their community mm-hmm. or county maybe got established first but by and large just generally speaking county historical societies were often uh, places where um, um, men whether they were they were they were doctors or leaders in their community or businessmen um, put together or wrote papers and they read them in a very in a very formal style in some kind of an, uh, uh, an auditorium to the other members of the society, and then generally they were typed up, and they were printed in their in their papers. Yeah, were they like things that they had researched, or were they like their memoirs, or what? What were the what were they what it, were they writing about? It was quite it was quite okay. a range. Some okay. of them, um, um, in some cases, were very um, proud of say their own lineage, mm-hmm. and they have the papers. Of their own, on their own family, right? And they could say, "Well, this is a little bit about the so and so family," mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, they could talk about when the, the, their progenitor came over, perhaps from Europe, and where he settled, and what land he bought, and and on and on. Um, but there were some that were, I think, generally concerned about knowledge being lost, right? Local history mm-hmm. and local knowledge and they wanted to convey um, you know what they could or maybe they had the only photographs of, of a certain thing and, and felt that there was a, was a side to some property or some some thing that uh, they wanted to, to tell this story and so they were kind of like a, like a lot of in, in a way like a lot of the other popular fraternal organizations of that time period when fraternal organizations 
were were very popular, right. whether it was the Elks, the Moose, the Odd Fellows, <laughs> the Patriotic Order, Sons of America, or whatever. You know, there were a lot of them. Yes. And uh, in in some ways, it was like another one of those, except their interests were really keyed uh, on history, and on local history or area or regional history. And I think another generalization that you some sometimes see is you. Uh, over time, you might get a contingent uh, within the formation of an early historical society, true much later, usually well into the 20th century, where you get a contingent that gets interested in preserving buildings. And they say, well, what can, what can we do beyond just saying, you know, please don't tear it down, please don't. And so sometimes you would see historical societies um, buying other historic buildings or trying to create some kind of revolving fund, right. or trying to raise money to s actually save buildings. And sometimes this is, has been good in terms of bringing other people into the historical society, and sometimes it, it tore some of these historical oh, societies yeah. apart, sure. where they said, well, gee, we're just doing history, and now you've got us you know, raising all this money for right. some building and, and making repairs, and it's taking all of our, right. our money, all of our money is going yeah. into... Uh, yeah, and I've heard... Um, of one museum, I can't even remember who it was, one museum person years ago was like, well, there's, you know, two types of, like, historical groups. There's, like, the ones that are focused on preserving buildings and the ones that are, like, focused on people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I think that's a, yeah. that's a good generalization. <laughs> yeah. And, and to apply that to our situation right here, um, this historical society was not initially in this building, and the front mm -hmm. building is... Uh, was used for some of the very first um, court cases in the county. Okay. Yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, when the county, and, and it's an 18th century building, yes, that front yeah. part. Yeah. And uh, so the historical society, when this became available, and, it, and this auditorium that we're in right now, this big auditorium with the balcony and, mm -hmm. and the other floors and everything, yes. is the result of uh, another fraternity, the Moose, the Loyal Order of, of, of okay, Moose, yes. built this, they added this auditorium oh, onto the back onto of that, that 18th oh, yes. century building. And they had a sauna upstairs, oh, they had a bowling alley down yeah. below, and the smoking area, they had a bar. Yeah. The the uh, the room that we walked through, the library, the, library, the reading okay, room, yes. was the bar oh my goodness, yeah. of the social club. Um, so they had all these uh, various amenities. And... Um, so some of these things made it um, great for the historical society to take, to, to, oh, to yes. take it, over. It actually gave you a great space. We have yeah. a lecture space yes. and we have uh, yeah. all this, this other space. The other thing that's very important to mention in terms of preserving uh, structures is that the Lebanon County Historical Society also owns the oldest transportation tunnel in America, which is the Union Canal Tunnel. Okay, yes. And that dates uh, back to the 1820s. And uh, so... Uh, I saw that on the website when I was prepping for this that you have, probably right not right now, but <laughs> that you have um, tours that like yes, take you on a boat yes. through there. Yeah. And then an annual event in May, Canal Days. Okay. And um, so we have some boats or canal barges, if you will, that are... Not not old, but you know, modern mm -hmm. built that we can actually take people through the tunnel. Oh yeah. 
and they can talk about the construction of, of the canal and of the tunnel and, and of the geology uh, of, the, of the hill uh, that the tunnel is underneath. And the Historical Society is also responsible for having stabilized and rebuilt the collapsed north portal okay. uh, of, the, of the canal tunnel. Stones have basically fallen down into so the they, mortar. So they, yeah. so they cleared out and dredged, you oh, know, so cool. that we can yeah. and develop the park on the other side. And 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 as a result of some generous donations, including a very important one from uh, Hershey Corporation um, of land, the the historical society owns about a hundred acres. Oh, that's yeah, that's out huge. There that, yeah, that is the Union Canal. Union Canal Tunnel Park. And then do you rent space there, or do you, is it, does it generate some revenue for you then too? That's uh, something that will be incre increased in the future. Okay, okay. No, I, just, I was thinking that it's a great resource to be able to utilize. Yeah. <laughs> and we moved, and speaking, speaking of, yeah. of, of, uh, of uh, logs, yeah. uh, the Historical Society also took over uh, a project to rebuild old log barn oh very cool and, and that was a, that was a case where the, where the logs or the barn mm -hmm. had to go oh. uh, and uh, another group was working on that mm -hmm. so that's something they picked up midstream and, and are to this day still carrying that to fruition okay so that has been in, in that case all those logs were carefully marked and they've all been yeah. gotten back in, yeah. in place it's like a think 1790s or so. Oh, yeah. You don't you don't see many uh, log barns. I think most probably because they were used so hard that the logs didn't the the construction didn't stay. Um, okay. Well, t um, I know that right now you probably have a pause on on your events, but tell me about some of the events that you that you do have or and some of the some of the um, the things that you do to reach out to the community. Well, we have a um, Sunday lecture series, and we've unfortunately had to put that on uh, on on hold. And those are those lectures are given in this auditorium, in this space that we're in now, which is a great uh, uh, room for it. Oh yes. Um, the the stage up there actually has a. If you look above the, the colonial. Uh, theater sign, you'll see a seam in the in the front yes. elevation, mm -hmm. and there's actually a motor under that stage, a oh. belt, a motor with a belt, and a lower stage. If you oh, will switch, it pull out? It will come out. Oh, very cool. <laughs> it will. It will. So you motor, have like two layers. <laughs> right. Two layer. Two layered stage yeah. that will project even closer to the uh, to the audience. Very cool. I will. I will take a picture of that. And make sure that we put it up with the with the podcast so everybody can get the visual of that. That's really. I. I don't think I've ever seen that. But that's fun. <laughs> that's something fun. <laughs> so that. Um, and then you have the library here. So do you have people? Do people send you like requests for for genealogy research and things like that, or do people mostly come in? Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because that is. Uh, most of what we, that is the office manager and I as the, as the archivist librarian are engaged in doing handling that. And uh, 
we get a surprising number of out-of-state requests. A lot of families emanated um, from Pennsylvania. Right. Not only did, did we have um, Philadelphia as one of the major ports, but mm -hmm. a lot of people, of course, of German or Germanic descent uh, came this way through Pennsylvania. And so you have a lot of people out there across America that trace their heritage back to Pennsylvania. Yeah. And with this uh, whole uh, COVID business going on, uh, as people were cooped up, <laughs> they had time. Genealogy, <laughs> genealogy was already becoming very popular yeah. again. And it has, if anything, surged as people were pent up with their, well, with, with their family. And of course, there were some good things that came out right. of that, getting to spend some quality time with, with your family, but also getting to spend even more time with your computer. So we have a lot of people who are going online going to various uh, sites. I won't go through and, and name a whole lot. Of them, but of course, there are lots of sites where you can find help oh, yeah. now as far as you're doing your own genealogy. So there, I think, was an even greater pent-up demand. And um, so we still, we were closed be because of COVID from mid-March to mid-August. Yeah, that's a long time. And uh, I came uh, in from time to time to, to keep my email under control and, yeah. and to check on things like dehumidifiers and oh, yeah. just security the, yeah. uh, and, and, and all of that. So um, we're still digging up from a backlog of requests, but of the paid, um, the prepaid requests, we, if, some, if somebody wants to come here and, and um, do research in our library and archives, the cost is $8 a day. It was $6. We just recently raised it $2. And it is still a tremendous bargain because that, um, it, it unfortunately doesn't get you a, a parking <laughs> space. <laughs> That's the downside. Um, but it does give you all day if you want it here, or at least when we're open from 10 to 5, um, to use our library and to use our database. If it's archival matter, I need to pull it out right. and put it in front of you. But otherwise, our library, um, you can use that like you would, would use another library. And uh, that also gives you free Wi-Fi, and it gives you access to, to an expanded subscription do things like, I said I wasn't going to mention some of these, <laughs> but like Ancestry and Newspapers.com. Oh, yeah. You're going to be able to see uh, and access more newspapers through our, uh, the, the library level subscription that we have mm -hmm. than, than likely with your home uh, subscription. And then we've got many of the old newspapers themselves, we, and we have them on microfilm too. Uh, we've got a tremendous wealth, just a generally tell you what we've got here, of um, uh, manuscripts, uh, architectural drawings uh, and plans, uh, deeds, postcards, a very large postcard collection, a very large photograph collection. Um, and I'm just talking, and, and then rec other uh, church and cemetery uh, records as far as births and marriages and those kinds of things. Um, and 
I'm just talking about the two-dimensional artifacts. Right. Now. Yes. I'm talking about the, pay, the you know, the things that are mostly have a have a, a length and a width. Yes. The three-dimensional artifacts uh, are what occupy the rest of the building and is basically the museum mm -hmm. of artifacts here. And you can see a uh, reconstructed pharmacy, uh, a barber shop, and some of these are whole vignettes or, or scenarios of things taken right out of a particular oh, room. Oh, very cool, yes. So it's not just something that's mm -hmm. been composed. Yes, it's, yeah. Uh, it's, it's uh, yeah, you, you, like you set it up exactly how it was wherever it came out of, yeah. yeah. Um, so the, you have well. So you have information not just genealogy related, but also, um, also like if somebody was interested in the history of their house or their building, they could they could also reach out to you or yes, at least it's some yeah. you have something since yeah. you said you had some blueprints and things like that deeds. And of course, it, it depends on 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 who lived there, right? Um, that sort of thing. So we will sometimes have. People will be disappointed that they won't have we won't have much on on um, uh, their house that might be a, a you know a, a, a row house in town. But what I tell them is, go to the county courthouse and get a chain of title right. and find out who did live there, because then once you have those names, you can come back to us and we can find we can use city directories, we can use other records to find out. Who those people were, census records, right. find out who those people were, what they did, how long they lived there, what their, you know, if you really want to learn about the people that lived in your, in your house, right. I think we can find you um, something. Yes. And um, I should also, uh, um, before we go on, mention that some of my background, I've a larger part of my background was was as a curator at the Landis Valley Village and Farm mm -hmm. Museum in Lancaster County. And I did that for um, almost two and a half decades, nice. was a curator um, down there with a very large collection large, that yeah, included manuscripts yeah. and family Bibles and things like that, yeah. but also include things like steam engines and, <laughs> and, and a enormous tool collection. Farm, yeah, farm stuff. So, um, yes, and then also agricultural technology and rural, yeah. all kinds of rural artifacts. That's, um, Landis Valley is beautiful. I, I recommend, well, I don't, they're not open. So I have to say I recommend yeah. it for a day trip, but if they're not open. <laughs> oh, um, so I, I know that you had to close for a, an extended period of time. What other challenges are you finding, you know, running a nonprofit in, in the age that we're in? Well, you, you have, um, this, is, this is an issue for any museum mm -hmm. and not necessarily even a nonprofit. Right. Is that you always have to remember that you have finite, not only finite resources, mm -hmm. uh, but finite space. Mm. And so, really, every music, museum or historical society out there needs to have a, a, a mission that they try to adhere to in terms of what they collect. I think that's excellent and, advice. Um, 
And if you're a county historical society, the simplest thing is, well, it, ha it needs to be something that was made here right. or used here uh, or made some kind of uh, history, uh, mm -hmm. you know, attached to the county. So uh, oftentimes that's when, if somebody calls you and says, uh, I've got something that I want to donate, uh, and by far, all the places that, that I worked, most of the things that you added to the collection were by donation. Right. And there are some wonderful things out there because things that have been in people's families and um, maybe they can no longer care for them or a younger generation doesn't want them right. um, or whatever the case might be, they call uh, a museum or historical organization that makes sense to them. Mm -hmm. And uh, when they offer something for donation, one of your first questions needs to be, where did this come from? <laughs> because if they say, well, gee, we, you know, we went to the shore last year and we always like stopping at such and such a flea market oh, goodness. In, yeah. in, in Jersey before we get down to the shore. And, you know, uh, well, unless it's marked 11 and County, right. or you know, somehow that it yeah. has. Um, so any, anyway, that's something that all historical organizations yeah. Um, and as, as far as a nonprofit, um, not only you, you have to raise money. Right. Um, and not only do we have things like the, the canal, uh, canal days and events associated mm -hmm. with, uh, with the canal, uh, but we have, of course, membership. Right. And membership is it's not huge. And uh, we have a lot of bills to pay. We have had for some time an annual uh, a ball, mm. um, fundraising ball. And that's been held at the, at the Lebanon Country Club the last so many years. And all uh, museums that I've worked with, and I haven't work with a lot of museums, <laughs> but I've put in a lot of years in, in the museums that I have worked in, right. are heavily de dependent upon uh, volunteer work, heavily dependent on volunteer work. And at Landis Valley, I was really uh, fortunate to have a number of, and, and in, in a lot of cases, these are, are retired folks, mm -hmm. because they're the ones that have time, yeah. have this time to yeah. devote. But at Landis Valley, I was very fortunate to have uh, a number of uh, professional folks who all along had uh, historical interests. Yes. Uh, one, who, one who was, uh, had, uh, had in his professional life, for example, who had been a physicist, uh, but knew a lot about postcards and had a postcard collection. Oh. <laughs> well, we had 10,000 some postcards yes. down there that needed, and we've got several thousand postcards here too at the historical society um so finding people like that that are already know a lot about the historical uh, subject and often tend to be very uh, conscientious mm -hmm. in their treatment of of and we give them uh, some guidance on handling things right. and uh there's some common sense things some things you might not think of um if you're handling uh a stoneware redware jug don't 
just grab it by the handle. Right. You might think, well, gee, that's what the handle's made for. <laughs> yeah, but you don't, you don't want on an artifact, you don't want that handle coming off right. in your hand. Oh, my goodness, that would be a really so, bad day. <laughs> you know, so you're going to have two hands. You're going to have a hand under the base, and you're going to have maybe right. the other hand is on yes. the handle. But you're going to. And, and a lot of common sense things with, with um, books and, and old maps and architectural drawings and things that would be um, in the archive. So, you know, we give um, people some training in that. But the volunteers uh, are very important. And I found it interesting that I had, had about five volunteers down there. And, of course, that was a public, that was oh, a yes. state, that's yes. a state site. And you still need the, uh, the volunteers, mm -hmm. really, um, yeah. to help uh, to get anything done. Uh, and uh, had five of them there, and I came down here, and there were five of them here in the <laughs> archives. Uh, and, and they had um, particular uh, expertise here, too. I found that one was, a, was especially interested in good at uh, early uh, church records and family records and able to read old German script. Oh, uh, another one had a background in, in medicine, so yeah. he was particularly oh, good, yes. knew about the medical records. Mm -hmm. And another one uh, had a background in the land office at the courthouse. Oh my goodness! Yeah, so you were you had and, like you everybody know. you needed. So and, uh, you know, yeah. uh, so uh, nonprofits just absolutely have to have uh, volunteers, and then then there are the uh, interns if you're lucky enough to get them. And um, generally from college, but not always. Yeah. Sometimes from high school. When I started, uh, not long after I started here, I had a high school, um, I don't know if you could call her an intern. Usually I think of an intern as they have a specific project and they're, and they're getting a grade. Right. They're getting academic credit. And so you want to give them a succinct project. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And they, mm -hmm. when they're done, they can put a bow on it. <laughs> and, the, and they can feel like they've not just sort of, <laughs> you know, moved the football another right. yard, but they scored a touchdown yeah. with what they're, that they've, know, they've accomplished something. What, what they're yeah. working on. And, um, and I, in my long public history career that's of almost 40 years, um, I've had about 30 interns over over the years, and most of them have been, most of them have been good, and a few have been truly outstanding. Yeah. So, which makes it a lot easier for me to write letters of recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> I completely understand. I I had um, there's a we had a the program through Millersville where they actually get paid, but we don't have to pay them, and we get them for the summer. So it's it's great, but. Um, there were I had three this summer and two were like excellent the best and then you know the the one that was you know we had struggles we we, we made it through the year this summer but we struggled some she was she was the one that was like can I use you for a reference and I'm like well you know let, let's talk about what struggles we had first <laughs> how, how you could do better <laughs> well, I was having having been an intern myself twice um, and when I finally did get my job in preservation my my supervisor much later said that you were you were one of you were one of seventeen applicants for this position that all had pretty similar college mm -hmm. training yeah and you know we're starting out you know as far as experience except we knew you oh yeah that makes a difference and so it's it, the internship is important for whether you go on to work for that same entity that you interned right. for or not it does get people in that community of interest 
to get to know you. Mm -hmm. And it helps you to decide whether this is something you really want to do. I agree. And it also helps you figure out what aspects of it you do or don't want mm -hmm. to do. You yep. might think that you, that you really, really, really want to be an archaeologist. And if you're exposed to the full breadth of what it means to work at a, uh, in an in a, in a archaeology division of right. a museum, you'll hopefully get some field work where you're out there in summer <laughs> getting grubby and sweating oh, in, the, yes. in the trench and learning how to make straight profiles with a trowel and learning that it's not just finding the goodies, but finding <laughs> their relationship right. in the ground with each other at different depths, but that you also get to do back in, in, in the office or back in base, you'll get to sit down and look at the clean um, artifacts and begin to do some typology, which is being able to sort them according to uh, time period and um, maybe what culture they came from, uh, that sort of thing. Get to do associated map work. Get to do some of the paper paperwork that's the right. follow-up to that documentation. Get to photograph the pieces yeah. and describe them uh, in, a, in, a, in a catalog description mm -hmm. so that, describe them as, and this is a good exercise, uh, succinctly so that somebody I mean, with a real economy of words, yet somebody in the next room who's never seen the artifact can come and, and look, see a pile of these and say, oh yeah, that's the one that's just been described to me. That's the one there. Right. And putting little white numbers on and doing all the other things that are related to archaeology or related to being a curator right. or an archivist or whatever. Yeah. Now, so yeah. You, might, uh, you, might like, you might like certain aspects of that job and not like other aspects. Right. And sometimes you can't avoid them. You <laughs> yes. Take what you like with what you don't. But if you are offered an opportunity and you know that it's gonna be all field work and it's going to be seasonal, um, or you're uh, offered a job in a section of archeology span where you're doing the documentation, the photography, cleaning the artifacts in the lab, putting the little numbers on them, right. uh, associating them with maps, and you're gonna be doing very little field work that might or might not be what you want to do for you right. or, or yeah. not. Yeah. And you learn what aspects of the job. And not just that, but pipe fitting or carpentry. Right, or anything, yeah. Learn, do, take an internship, find out what about the job, whether, whether it's something you're gonna like or. Right, yeah, because yeah, sometimes it's not, it's not what you imagine it would be. And it's hard if you've already like invested <laughs> A lot of time in preparing to be that yeah. <laughs> but then you you I, I hope that I hope that you would someone would be able to then you know make the adjustment and, and find something that they're happy with because I think that life is definitely too short to like be miserable going to work every day <laughs> right you yeah. want to be you want to yeah. be uh, um, if not you know sink whistling every day you go to work you want to at least feel that you're you want to if you can fortunate to feel fulfilled in some way. I agree. Um, yeah. And that extends to all kinds of jobs. I mm -hmm. mean, some of it, it's just, if people have, you know, produced a widget or they've, or they've filled so many drums uh, and, and they can go home feeling like they've exerted themselves physically. Right. I know, 
I know for me, if I do all mental work and I don't get any physical work, I like to have, I mean, the ancient Greek ideal was that you be, you be balanced in your mental and your physical. And I, and I know for me, if I don't get enough of the, the physical in there, it, it's, I'm depressed. <laughs> Well, I love, yeah, I love the yeah. history and I love the yeah. old stuff. Yeah, but I have to get out. And yeah, and I, I think I think that is having a balanced life. And and I know when I have to like use my brain all day, then I am really tired at night. <laughs> so, um, what um, trends and challenges do you see in preservation based on you know your kind of vantage point? You're talking about architectural preservation. Yeah, it, it, or any any type of preservation. I mean, you can you can you can take that however you want. Uh, boy, I don't know. I don't know if I'm out there enough to see the tr the trends. Mm -hmm. Certainly, I think. Well, let's look at what's popular now. Uh, certainly, genealogy is mm -hmm. is is going strong, and I think continues. And and I think that's a good thing. And and mm -hmm. I, and I have to be honest here. When I worked in other uh, fields. Sometimes I was I would get very irritated when people would would come in to look at something and they were so fixed fixated on an ancestor who was in a particular regiment. Oh yes. And they wanted to tell you to the nth degree, nth degree what he did and, <laughs> and etc. And and yet uh, I've found and and it's 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 a function of I guess my getting older and working also in an, in a different kind of history environment. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and what I said before about collecting and reaching a, a oh, certain yes. level of maturity, you do at some point uh, really get interested in, especially in uh, family articles that were passed down right. and who had them and who used them and who might have, have made them. And so, whereas when I was much younger, I was really, you know, content to, to, to collect certain kinds of tools or whatever yes. now it's got to have a maker's mark <laughs> on it and i've got to know where you know what township right. did it come from at least and if it didn't come from my family i'd like to know yeah. where it spent its life right. uh, that sort of thing so the genealogy um almost everybody you can get interested in their own history mm -hmm. so i think that's that's a good thing and um and we need to we need to remember that History is, it, it's, it's, it's really, we're not unearthing new facts that were never known, although we might be giving them new interpretations. Right. We're really, as a collectively, humanity is recalling what it is, has forgotten. Right. So there are things that you just wish you knew or could figure out that was just common knowledge to your great great grandma or great great grandpa mm -hmm. right that it, that it was just so commonplace that they didn't write it down or didn't say and so now you might have something that's passed down to you that's like a hammer or something and you just know it's passed down in the family but you don't know if somebody did their apprenticeship with it or if it was their favorite tool as a, a maker of uh, crates or whatever uh, right and you wish you knew these things mm -hmm. and in the in the when people are busy earning their living and everything, they don't write, they don't have time to write right. everything down. So anyway, I, I think it's good to see expanding interest in genealogy and expanding capabilities to answer people's questions uh, on the internet. Uh, but 
you are going to have to be cautious because as as people keep telling people, not everything that you see on the internet is necessarily true. That's true. And you, at the end of the day, you've got to go, uh, I'll make a pitch for the historical site, you've got to go to the repository yeah. and you've got to see for yourself whose names are on the deed, whose names are on, on the birth certificate, look at the census records, look at the newspapers, the marriage records, et cetera, et cetera, and um, verify what you what you can what you see on the internet right uh and that's that's when everybody really truly becomes a historian um and i think that's a good thing um shows like um antiques roadshow oh yeah that's something that's uh very popular and as as i've been telling people uh around me for a couple of years now i think that one of the very best things that's, that Antiques Roadshow has intro, indirectly introduced is this whole idea of provenance. And that is, what is the history of a piece right. and where did it come from? Because I think that your layman out there, um, for the most part, you know, pretty much thought that, um, that, that the value of something was inherent in just whatever it is. So if it's a, um, I keep using tools, but if it's a, no, give me another artifact. We've got quilts hanging all <laughs> oh, around yes. us here that you can't see. Um, that uh, it might be a fine example of a certain uh, pattern of a quilt in terms of the condition of it, in terms of the complexity of it, the different colors that were used, um, just the way you know, it was put together and, and as I say, the condition or shape. Uh, and that's, that's one, one level of interest and, and value. If you know beyond that, that it was made by a great-great-grandmother, that it was your great-great-grandmother, or it was the great-great-grandmother of, of somebody who's important in history. Right. Who, um, uh, that makes it so much more, um, it makes it, it gives it a higher monetary value, right? But it also makes it that much more interesting. It has a story. It has a story, and you, if you've seen photographs of that person, um, and when you see somebody comes into Antiques Roadshow, and they come in and they have, uh, they have an artifact, and then they've got an associated letter yes. where it was given to great great grandpa. And then they've got some other artifact. And so they've got paper documentation and they've got an artifact and they've got another related artifact and they've got this whole story. And then, and then the appraiser says, wow, I've never seen anything like this. <laughs> that is funny. And they get, they get their attention. To yeah. It. Yeah, they do. And, and yeah. I think they like to, I think they like to tell the, the, the stories also. I enjoy watching that show too. <laughs> so so the, the moral of the story there is if you know now, uh, about how much more interesting an artifact is mm -hmm. if it's got past documentation. If you've got something now in your family that's, that's maybe not old, right? and you know that it could well be of interest in the future, somewhere record where it came from. Right. Uh, Tell the, and yeah. you know, maybe of the, the most important three or four things that might be modern things that you're going to pass down, somehow 
preserve that story. Right. If it's a piece where you can write it on the back or you can put it on something and put it in a drawer and also have a digital uh, copy on the computer, uh, do that. And then if you've got some old artifact that was maybe your grandfather's and you knew your grandfather and your grandfather not only gave it to you, but he told you a story and that story's just been up in your head. Right. Put that, make a digital copy of that or write that down. Because that's the sort of thing that while you know it and it's common knowledge and you may have known it for 75 years, your great, 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 great grandchildren if the piece stays in the town, they're going to want to right, know that. Right. Or if they don't want the piece and it go and it goes out on the market. But it, yeah, it can, that can still go with it. It's yeah. it's known. Yeah. That story is preserved. Yeah. The piece. Yeah. I think that's really important. I know that um, my husband's grandmother gives us a lot of things that have been, and so like now I'm thinking, oh, I should probably like write. Write, write some things down. <laughs> we take good care of them, but we haven't we haven't yeah. you know, done a lot of documentation. So, um, is, how can someone support the um, the Lebanon County Historical Society? Is memberships the best way? Um, well, uh, <laughs> obviously, if we get a, a donation over and above membership. <laughs> That's you know that's yeah. that's ideal, but let me throw one other thing out sure. is uh, not just the monetary donations, but uh, try and get the see what the younger generation is interested in mm. because that gives us a future uh, investment. Oh yeah. Uh, in it, um, in terms of you know bring bring your your kids here. If they're too young to do research in manuscripts and maybe you don't even have the time themselves, bring them in and get them a tour of the museum. And I don't mind at all, uh, even if somebody's not going to use the archives and library, saying, hey, I'll give you a a quick two-minute tour. Right. You know, this side's like a library and this side is manuscripts. We've got everything from sports history to military history to club history to et cetera. And, and, And at a minimum, make them aware that it's here mm-hmm. make make them aware that it's here so if you if you you know want to commit to a membership uh that's great if over and above that you can make a donation uh that's wonderful but also find a way to you know get your have your make your kids at least aware right um Bring them in, you know, once and show them, you know, uh, so that it's here. Because that way you're making an, an investment in the in the future. And in, right. in, in many ways, that's just as important. I, yes, yeah, I agree. I, one of the things that has always interested me is why are people or why are people not interested in old things in mm-hmm. history? Because it was something that, 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 came to me naturally and I don't know where it came from and I I'm not even sure myself um, except that when I see an old piece and I know approximately when it came from I have a Mm -hmm. I have always had a good imagination right so it's easy for me to think of the people and and what they're what they're wearing and how they would have used it and and why they would have made it and and all of that. So all of the, that kind of background come, just 
floods into my brain when I, when, and, and even as a kid, when I picked up something old and I saw the wear on it and I, and, and by looking at books, I could figure out about how old it was. Right. Where does that interest come from? And, uh, people, um, and it makes the world go round, but people have different interests. And it's healthy for people to have all kinds of different right. interests. <laughs> and I've noticed in any group, a, a bus of, of school children that would come in where I worked before uh-huh. into, to, to Landis Valley, um, there might be a few kids there that are just aren't interested at all. The bulk of them would have some level of interest. Mm-hmm. And then there are going to be a few where it's hard to tear them away from even asking questions. Right. Yeah. Um, so, and, and that's the way it is. And those, those ones are going to be the future uh, archivists and curators <laughs> and conservators and the public history people who are going to preserve and interp- interpret for the greater mass of people yes. who then might want to come and pick certain things out of it or access right. the information. Yeah. No, I agree, and I've done a couple presentations for, for kids. Usually my presentations are for adults, but and adults have kind of learned to tamp, tamp down their excitement. But but the the, um, the ones I've done with kids, the kids that are sitting in the front row and are so excited and want to tell you about their house, and they're the ones that make it fun. <laughs> so is there anything that we didn't cover that maybe you thought about as we were talking that, that, um, that you want to mention before we wrap up? I don't think so. Okay. I had, I mean, I. It might be of interest, just one or oh, sure. two of the real of the of. Um, when I was in preservation, I mean, one of the things that was really memorable, I got to. When uh, Independence Hall was fully scaffolded, mm-hmm. um, I was. Part of the the team. I was actually at that point. I was the architectural preservation reviewer, appointed by the State Historic Preservation Office to, to go down and meet with the structural engineers, the architects, and the city's own uh, preservation people. Mm-hmm. Anyway, when that building was fully scaffolded for repairs all the way to the top of the spire, I got to climb that scaffolding oh, and get cool. all the way to the top of that, which mm-hmm. was kind of a, <laughs> it was a scary experience, yes, but it was, yeah. a, it was a once in a lifetime thing to be scaling that building mm-hmm. and go you know all the way and up then there get to see yeah. and really put your hand on the top of the spire and on the uh, um, you know so that was a really memorable thing and um, just some of the people that you that you that you meet along the way whether it was working with artifacts or working with buildings um, some great people and um, oftentimes, and, I, and I've never been really, really good with faces and names. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just, <laughs> I might spend some time with somebody and then see them in the crowd and think, oh, is that person, right. is that them Why do or they is look, it not? Yeah. And, and what was their name? <laughs> but I've always said, if you're an artifact, I'll remember you forever. Because <laughs> people would bring in some really neat things with some really neat stories. Yeah. And, uh, and I would just remember them forever. And I would know once I had cl- you know, cleaned and cataloged and that artifact and put it on a shelf, I would know, always know where it was <laughs> in amongst the 100,000 things. I could go to that shelf and say, I know where that is. Yes. I, you know, 
That's a great memory. <laughs> uh, so, um, well, how can someone contact you or contact the, the Historical Society? I get uh, quite a bit of email. Um, I got, so I, I guess a lot of people do it that way. People uh, will still send things in through the mail. Okay. Um, there are two email addresses for the Historical Society, and one starts out office. Okay. And that goes directly to our office manager, and the one that starts out archive, the word archive, goes directly to me. Okay. And then if someone's starting the research, should they reach out to the office first, do you think? Is that the best? Uh, it, or does it, it not doesn't, matter? It doesn't matter. Okay. I, I, should, I should add, it's important to add, that when I said we get a lot of requests um, from outside of Pennsylvania, the way that we handle those, and it's the way that all of the historical societies and repositories right do basically is that we, we need to charge for that research time. Mm -hmm. um, I would say of the, of the half a dozen to 10 prepaid uh, um, research requests that came in, and I had a, I had a, 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 back, a summer backlog of dozens and dozens oh, of no. requests, but of the ones that were prepaid, I mean, I had one from Washington State and one from Oregon and one from Arizona and one from Illinois and uh, and I could go on naming other states in the Union right. and, and one was from was in Pennsylvania and, <laughs> there and it was from Chambersburg um, but the way that we handle the requests uh, for somebody who cannot come in and do the do the research uh, is that we will do research for uh, $25 an hour okay. and we will give you an estimate beforehand so if you say if you were to send an email either to the office email address or to or to mine and say uh, I'm researching my great-great-grandfather or mother who had this following name and I think this is about when they were born and I think this is what religious affiliation they were, and I think this is their church. Can you find out for me all that you can about this? Um, then we would take a look at it, and knowing what kinds of records we have, we would say, well, records are scanty on this sort of thing, and um, we'll probably find out all that we can in, in an hour. Right, <laughs> right. Or if we say we've got only one manuscript that deals with this and I can go and check it in 10 minutes and tell you whether it's of use or not. Right. If we can go and check something Easy. in five or 10 yeah. minutes, we do not, we don't charge somebody for that. But if we go, have to go through, um, you know, five, six, 10 different sets of records and hunt because there are so many people that are writing in with requests and all that, uh, to put them in the queue in order and to support, to pay for copier paper and the, you know, run the dehumidifiers and everything else. Oh, yes, you yeah. Know, pay all those bills and stuff. Well, and we they do, need to pay for your time, too. And, yeah. and pay for our time and yeah. our own. There are only uh, yeah. two of us here now. Yeah. Um, help pay the salaries and everything. Um, 
we do charge but we will give you an estimate we will take take a look at that and say well gee that's gonna you know that's that's a good two hours worth of work is it worth fifty dollars to you and sometimes people then will refine their search and say well i'm really only interested about this individual right or that they might refine it somewhat but there are those people that will say we'll send in sixty or a hundred dollars yeah and say you know please give this i want all i want all that you can find out about about them yeah and 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 then we will in that case include the cost of copies you know if we're copying some church records okay and then mailing it yeah i was thinking you could frame it as cheaper than a plane ticket I, I, have, I, have a, I have a guy who's coming in tomorrow who's landing at the, all I know is he's landing at the BWI airport. Yes. And he's going to stay, he's going to stay in York. Oh, yes, And I'm not sure what, what state he's coming in from. Oh, that'll be interesting. Coming. Yeah. And, in, in, and then also in this time of COVID, what we're trying to, to do, um, I don't know how much longer we will do this, but presently the, the front door actually is locked. <laughs> so that we can control the population uh, in here and i'm asking people if at all possible try and make appointments with us it makes sense we don't have a big research room in there and it doesn't usually get crowded but it has on occasion gotten Mm -hmm. crowded and if you if you have five different researchers in there or if you have four different couples right in there it can get busy uh it can get crowded and we don't have the room in there to really socially distance right. people. Yeah. So that's why I'm at this point I'm trying not to have two researchers at the same time. So um, you know if we can split up the day and if somebody has a fairly short thing um, if they can and they're coming in the morning then we can say okay yeah if somebody calls yeah can you come in the afternoon fine otherwise we're trying to space them each to a day uh, where we right can yeah yeah and that 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 makes sense from a from a safety standpoint and hopefully hopefully it won't get terrible this fall and we'll, we'll yeah. try to get back to normal somewhat um, so okay well thank you so much for for your time i appreciate it i i feel like i i learned a lot and um i want to take some pictures so we can post them on the on the website too yeah good we like to see people in here that yes. want to <laughs> yes. want to come in and use the resources. Very good. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.